Welcome back to World Cup Coffee and Tea at Northwest 18th and Gleason for another OMN Coffee Shop Conversation. I'm Tom D'Antoni. As you know, from time to time, I like to bring in a member of the OMN family and let you meet him. Today, it's Stephen Blackman, who's done a lot of good things for us, including handling all of the Portland Jazz Festival Jazz Conversation recordings. He's a guitarist, singer, composer, producer, engineer, and a full-time attorney at the same time. He's a man of long experience in music and one of strong opinions. I wouldn't want to be on the other side of a legal procedure against him. He's always been there for us and for me when things go goofy, and he always has a remedy. He plays every Thursday night at Gallo Nero, 6 to 9 p.m., and you can hear him with singer Lorna Baxter at the Hotel Vintage on Friday, May 5th. Let's meet Steve Blackman. How about it? Welcome to the cupping room. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I think you've been here before. Uh, once or twice. <laughs> you've been here from the very beginning. I have been here from the beginning. You helped set this up. I did. We tried all kinds of microphones in here. <laughs> this is also true. <laughs> and we ended up with these little headsets. We, we ended up with little headsets because everything else sounded even more boomy and illegible. <laughs> um, uh I, every you know, every once in a while, you know, we like to do somebody who's part of the Oregon Music News family, and we can, of course, consider you that. Uh, Steve also um, uh, is responsible f- for all of the uh, Portland Jazz Festival jazz conversations. That's been fun over the years, hasn't it? It has been fun. There have been some extraordinarily wonderful, yeah. uh, memorable conversations out of that, and I'm yeah. glad to have those posted up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you now you started out. You you've recorded these differently, you know. Or, or you've, you've changed the manner of recording over the years, haven't you? Yes, we have, and part of that has to do with when I started. I was doing all of the recording. Yeah. And now I'm also producing shows for the Portland Jazz Festival, and we found in one year that. Uh, even with written directions and pictures, they weren't getting the uh, nuances. Yes. So we tried to simplify it, and to some extent that has worked. But uh, as this last year, sometimes somebody totally ignores what we tell them, sits out in the middle of the audience, and it yes, sounds you, like... Yes, you, you, you mean the one where he, he put the microphone behind everybody? That I mean, would be wonderful. I mean, the recorder behind... Yes. Er, behind the people who were doing the jazz conversation right. and not even near any of the speakers. You mean that one? That would be one of those, yes. Yeah. That was memorable. It was. It was It was corrected uh, at the last minute, but that's where it started. Um, I was just thinking back to, you know, like early on when we first started to do that, it, it was seemed to be the, the jazz conversations were more plentiful and somewhat more interesting uh, to, 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 to a certain degree. I mean, you know, Esperanza shows up at the height of her popularity and Randy Weston, mm-hmm. you know. With, mm-hmm. I, I'll never forget that Randy Weston jazz conversation. Uh, well, there's numerous jazz conversations that I uh, think are very memorable. The uh, Part of the difficulty started to be with transportation, people kept coming, you know, their planes would be delayed. So you have the jazz conversation scheduled, but they also need to do a sound check. Uh, Then some of the people did uh, kind of at the last moment would say, no, I'm just too tired. I don't want to do that. So we got tired of disappointing people and we tried to uh, minimize and make it ones where uh, most of the jazz conversations from last year, the musicians actually got in the night before. Yeah. So yeah. they had the framework to get in. And then time-wise, they went off all right. Uh, in the, we didn't have anybody who was still carrying the luggage from their plane. <laughs> but it still had. we had some of the technical problems you were talking about, yeah. unfortunately. I remember one that it was the year before we started podcasting them. Um, when the Mingus Legacy Band was scheduled, and they couldn't get out of New York because of a snowstorm. Right, right. And and I was I was scheduled to actually do that jazz conversation, and so I made some phone calls and got Sam Howard and David Friesen, 
and um, I believe Lukoff actually said it on that one too. Ah. Uh, but uh, of course, Friesen had great Mingus stories, right. and Howard had a different different perspective on Mingus being a young player. So, you know, we had some. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> glad of that. And that was also the same day that um, they, they actually did get to get into town, and uh, Shira uh, dialed him up. Um, doing the audio, I, I had her in here talking about that with no sound check. Oh, she just dialed him in live. <laughs> wow, wow. Well, Shira is amazing. She's just a, a, a terrific sound tech. And, yeah. Um, I learned a lot from her. I did uh, some work with her over at LVs when mm-hmm. they were doing some live music there. Mm-hmm. LVs. Oh, geez. Yeah, yeah, that's a while ago. Wow. Uh, she was she was incredible. She was there for. Um, yeah. Live show. Oh yeah, she did. Dialed it in and yeah. impeccable. Yeah. And I learned so much about live sound equipment just in helping her out on that. So you, you, you're a guitar player, but you have you always done sound stuff, audio stuff, or? or? Uh, I have. I've always been fascinated with um, sound equipment and recording. Mm-hmm. I didn't usually apply it to my own projects. It was. Uh, more experimental. I built my own echoplex out of a really? tape recorder, you know, so you have the <laughs> little echo sound going. Uh, then I would help out. It becomes a self-defense mechanism to know how to set up sound equipment if you're playing, <laughs> because half the time the people don't know what they're doing or they're just. Uh, worse than incompetent so it's always good to know yes I want to cut the mids now I need to cut the highs yes I have feedback at 1300 so I can control that myself instead of having them just mess around on the board (laughs) do they not like that Um, some don't like that but usually at that point I don't really care (laughs) at that point I just want to stop feeding back yeah Maybe some of them, some of them might like it, though, right? Uh, I think they appreciate the. I think some of them were like me with Shira. Is that they learned a lot in a short period of time, mm-hmm. and that's uh, when it works out well. I'm glad that it works out well. What kind of stuff can you learn from somebody like Shira? Well, that's an excellent question. Thank you. Um, so, first off, you already have to have some background to know what you're seeing and what she's doing. Yeah. But you'll see a sound engineer go, check, check. Yes. And you think, okay, yeah, that's really dull. Actually, that really is a useful test for the equipment because they're giving uh, high frequency and low frequency, and they're giving a lot of uh, the pops. And so they can tell a lot about the sound system from that. And while she's doing that, she's twisting the knobs to get the sound that she wants out of it. And because she's so experienced, she knows what to do. And if you watch her, you can say, oh, I see. That's, that is cutting that. And then she'll do something that you would not think of. One of the things that I had not, that I learned from her was that uh, mids are bad. <laughs> yeah, if, when you have a, a channel strip, there's lots of ways you can equalize. Most people think, oh, I like the way mids sound, so they turn those up. Well, that's where a lot of feedback is, where a lot of the mushiness is. And what she does is, and what good sound engineers do, is they'll tend to cut the mids and then boost the highs and the lows. And because of that, the overall audio spectrum is a lot more clear. And and you watch how quickly they dial it up and then how quickly they go to a particular instrument and they'll change that. So for obviously for voice is one thing, for male voice is another one. And I can look at her dial settings on that particular board and I go, okay, I learned a lot about where she starts and what fine tuning she does. Um, she also does the shows uh, for the PDX Jazz at the uh, Newmark Theater. She's the person who... Uh, yeah, does the sound there, and she's incredible with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I believe that's where she did the Mingus 
Legacy Band. No, wait a minute. Newmark's not. That's that's the smaller one, isn't it? Mm, no, the Winningstead is the smaller one. Oh, I think was, Newmark was, is the big one. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah that's, was, that's where she did the. Yeah. Legacy right. Band. Yeah. Um, she t- she told that story in here. It was, it was pretty interesting. No. Oh. Of course, it was like that yeah, was nothing. Yeah. Well, I, she can do that <laughs> so quickly, and it's uh, yeah. and it's wonderful to see. I'll do a quick Shira story, and this is uh, we had a very well-known guitar player in town for one of the jazz festivals, and he was on stage, and he was a jazz guitarist, but he was using a Marshall cabinet, which is a rock and roll cabinet, and he's a little bit older, and always kept turning it up, so Uh for the show, there was none of him in the mains. It was entirely, it was entirely coming from the stage. Really? Yeah. Wow. And then the the rest of his uh, group, they had some minimal feet in, but <laughs> that doesn't happen very often, does it? Not very often. More yeah. often, you uh, think in rock and roll. Yeah. Well, say so when when you say you produce a show for the jazz festival, what what does that mean? That's a stage manager position, and uh-huh. the, what we do is the production crew is responsible for everything from loading in and setting up the back line to uh, making sure that the water bottles and towels are in place. And probably the most important thing is to make sure that the artists are comfortable physically on stage. So we're always saying, you know, do you want piano back or forward? We're happy to move it. Don't think that's there and you have to stay there. Um, And I think the production crew is also responsible for any of the glitches that happen where someone says, well, I just can't use this hi-hat stand. So we have to go find another hi-hat stand. And it's got to be quick because that show's coming up. And this all grew out of your your, 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 your performing. Yeah. Uh, it, the Yes, it grew out of the performing. I've been a guitarist since I was 13. And then I always liked sound equipment and was always working on the PAs for our little shows and so on. Uh, ah. And then it became more so, I became more involved when I started singing. For many years I was uh, just a guitarist. And then when I got into singing, you go, hey, no, this really, less mids, less mids. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were 13, what were you playing? What kind of What kind of stuff were you playing? I was playing Southern rock for the most part. Really? And like was, Allman Brothers? Uh, well, actually, yes, Allman Brothers. Definitely yeah. Allman Brothers with Eric Clapton kind of uh, thrown Leonard in Skinner. there. And, I'm sorry? Leonard Skinner? I, no, not Leonard Skinner. That wasn't... Uh, so you didn't play Freebird? I, did, I have played Freebird, <laughs> more as a joke than anything else, but certainly played Freebird. Usually in seven and usually in a very odd key. Uh, but uh, for the most part, that style of Southern rock um, didn't appeal to me. I really enjoyed the Allman Brothers. The twin uh, slide sound was a beautiful thing. I enjoyed a lot of the groups that were on the Capricorn label at that time. Uh, One of the groups that was on Capricorn for a brief period of time was Steve Morse's band, and he had a... The Dixie Dregs were the kind of southern rock that I liked. And that was a highly proficient Mm -hmm. group that was influenced by the Mahavishnu Orchestra, Mm -hmm. and but still had southern grit in them. And there was not much Southern grit in John McLaughlin's Mahavishnu no. Orchestra. No, no. The only grit uh, McLaughlin was pretty much ever involved in was when he was with Miles. Yeah, that would, <laughs> that would be grit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what got you into jazz? I was in high school, and several of my friends were in the jazz band there. Mm-hmm. And I had listened to a little bit of John McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. Mostly my vision orchestra. Were you trying to play as fast as possible? I often try to play as fast as possible, and uh, for good or evil, I'm pretty good at it. It's uh, uh, the jazz director there did two wonderful things for me. First, he uh, took my guitar and the amplifier and turned down the treble to almost nothing, and then he 
turned up the bass quite a bit, so you get the jazz guitar sound. Yeah. And that was a very useful piece of information for somebody who is screeching in the high end. <laughs> he also introduced us to lots of really wonderful music. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took several of the members of the group to see a concert in Tampa in the stadium of Chicago, the horn band, mm-hmm. and the opening group was Steely Dan. Huh. And Steely Dan at that time was running around the country playing in old 1890s baseball outfits. <laughs> this is right after their first record to come out, yeah. and Reeling in the Years is coming up, starting to come up. Uh, and that was a wonderful experience to hear both Chicago, who I was aware of, and Steely Dan, who I had not been aware of at all until that time. And they liked the Dixie Dregs, just enormous amount of technique and taste put together. Yeah. And what a delight that was to mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. See that as a double show. I went to a, a, a Mahavishnu Orchestra show one time, and it was like, you know, it was, it was uh, the person who booked it did not know what was going on because mm-hmm. Mahavishnu Orchestra opened for Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show. <laughs> Well, that sounds like one of the shows we used to have at the Paramount. Uh, when I got here in uh, in 1973, the Paramount Theater was known for having several odd combinations. And, for example, there would be a triple bill, and it would be, one time it would all make sense. Yeah. It would be someone like Mahavishnu with Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock. Yeah. All for $3. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> Then the next time Mahavishnu came through, he'd be opening for Lee Michaels, who was a really terrible blues guitarist and terrible blues piano player. He had and one good song. One good song? What was that? Do you know what I mean? Uh, well, maybe he played it that night, but I missed it. But he, it, it was, was his only hit. His only hit. Oh, oh his okay. only hit. His only hit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting stuff. Uh, yeah. Paramount was a source of Many wonderful concerts uh, at that time. They, I'm not exactly sure what the synergies were, but I think at that time a lot of the bands were still on buses. Yeah. So Portland made sense in between San Francisco yeah. and yeah. Seattle to do shows, mm-hmm. whereas now flying, we get skipped over all the time. Yeah. Um, and and um, in addition, um, at that uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra Dr. Hook show, after Mahavishnu finished, half of the audience left. <laughs> well. Well, it was a different... <laughs> I, I, I may have actually gone to that show. This was in Baltimore. Oh, not in Baltimore? Okay. Because yeah, I, I remember there was a show that was very similar, and I, I was wondering if it might be that show, but it, probably it was the Lee Michaels one. The Lee Michaels one was also memorable because I had a heavy army coat on, uh-huh. and... When Lee Michaels came on, the sound from the stage, and I was midway back, yeah. was making the, the coat <laughs> go back and forth like this. So I'm like, this is really loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw uh, I saw Jimi Hendrix in uh, 1970, I believe. Oh, wow. Speaking of loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, uh, anyway, so you started playing jazz. Mm-hmm. And who was your jazz hero? Um, I think many people who get involved in jazz have probably the best laundry list of who to listen to by just going to a Miles Davis record. Mm -hmm. So you go and you say, okay, somebody says listen to Miles Davis, and you look at it, you go, hmm, Wayne Shorter. wonder what he sounds like. Who's this Herbie Hancock person? Uh, John McLaughlin was on several of those things. But... It's uh, Pete Cozy. Pete Cozy was an interesting guitar player. Pete Not my Cozy. favorite. No one ever talks about Pete Cozy. The the bands that uh, Miles put together around that time were interesting, but they were inscrutable. Yes. Uh, I do I do like yeah. a lot of it. Uh, Dave Liebman, the sax player, was with him during parts right. of that period. Right. It was a very interesting. Exploration, but you know, get up with it and uh, Agharda and those things. Those were sonic experiences. Yep. 
So, and they actually were very influential on people like Vernon Reed, who was in Living Color. Absolutely. And very uh, influential to me in getting into avant-garde guitar. And that would be people like Derek Bailey mm -hmm. and uh, pe people who were experimenting with the sonics of the guitar rather than melody. Well, it was it was those bands and the bands that followed them, the, the Return to Forevers and the Mahavishnus, that I think uh, was responsible for getting an entire generation of rock people into jazz. Well, I, yeah, I agree entirely. Yeah. Certainly the yeah. jazz rock was equal parts, and yeah. part of it was yeah. rock attitude, part of it was an appreciation at that time of especially guitar heroes. Mm -hmm. So someone like McLaughlin had a lot of credibility, and then when he and Santana put out some records, and wow, I know who Santana is, who's this yeah. other guitar player. Yeah, 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 Those yeah. things were delightful to... Yeah. Uh, I don't think they stand up on rehearing that well. I uh, have never gotten tired of the Inner Mounting Flame. Inner Mounting Flame, I agree with you. and yeah. uh, But I'm, I'm thinking about the, some of the... Uh, combinations that were yeah. put together. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I think it's called. Is it Welcome? What is? Is which one? That's the Santana and McLaughlin. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't think it's mean. Welcome. I think that's a yeah. different. But it's it didn't quite gel. Some of their later things did. Mm -hmm. And John McLaughlin's coming up here for his last tour in the United States in December. Ever? Ever? Yeah. Is he that old? Uh, he's, I think, seventy-two, but he's tired of tired of moving around. But wow. he's he'll be with the, at the Revolution Hall, huh. and I'll be an excellent show. And I'll be there, and I'll be backstage, and happy to be there, uh, yeah, helping to produ bet. produce that for I'll the bet. Portland wow. Jazz Festival. Huh. Um, all right. So, at some point, you started singing. I did start singing. Um, the jazz. I. Well, I had been singing from when I first started guitar because in addition to jazz and rock, I really, really enjoyed uh, singer-songwriters who were three chords in the truth, people like John Prime. Those songs are yeah. just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, once you had a guitarist like Leo Kaki described his own voice as being geese farts, you yes. think, well, maybe it's okay <laughs> if I sing. So I, I did sing uh, a little bit of that kind of what I would call campfire songs, people yeah. songs that people knew. Uh -huh. Much later, uh, I had been singing along with my solos for quite a while, which is something that jazz musicians tend to do, keyboard players and guitarists. Obviously, sax player is just a little bit more difficult to try to sing while you're playing. Uh, but it's a very common connection so that you're following melody rather than just a pattern of finger movements. And I got better and better with that and did start singing jazz. And now I uh, have a whole set of jazz standards and enjoy doing that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Usually that's at private parties. The, mm -hmm. the things that I'm doing out, I'm either accompanying another vocalist. Uh, I do play backup for a lot of female vocalists now. And then... Who are you playing with? Uh, I play with Anandi on occasion. Mm -hmm. do some things out at the Orinco Station. I play with Lorna Baxter. Mm -hmm. uh, Susan Lamaster, who's a lesser known but very wonderful person. A uh, good singer. Uh, uh, you know, several ones that are kind of... Uh, not in mind right now. I haven't done it for a while. Cause what about Mosaic? Are you still involved in that project? I'm not with Mosaic anymore. Okay. Uh, that's a wonderful band that plays out at Riverdurchi. Mm -hmm. The vocalist with that, they, you know, this is a terrific rock and jazz singer. We kind of parted ways. They were playing more. Mm -hmm. After we were playing the entire album's uh, rock albums, I was going, you know, this really isn't where I need to be anymore. Uh, it, it was bad enough. I, bad enough. I, I like I like Nora Jones, but you know, doing Nora Jones songs is not what I would want to do. And I wanted to, if we did do those songs, I wanted to make them much more jazzy arrangements 
and essentially it came down to uh, someone saying, well, you know, you're not really playing rock guitar. And I said, <laughs> yes, I know that. <laughs> so, the wonderful people, and it's a, a, what a terrific band and terrific group of people. And there was another singer, your friend and mine. That's how we Kelly met. Kelly Shannon, yeah. That's how you and I met with Kelly Shannon. Yes, she's, a, she's an incredible singer. Yeah. She has a classic background, classically trained. She's sung for many years in a wide variety of styles has many albums out with John Stoll who's an incredible guitar player who lives here you were working with her and she was my roommate that's correct that's right (laughs) that's right those were some days yeah that was some days with uh, yes well Kelly is uh, unique she is unique and she is a a force of nature yes and, uh, now, what did you do with her album? What was it called? Oh, uh, the, with the Tom Waits album, the Tom, the Tom Waits tune. Uh, Temptation. Temptation. I, I recorded that. What about the one? Wait, you recorded that. Did you right. also record the one before that? The one I wrote the liner notes for. Um, Which one did I wrote the li- write the liner notes for? I forget. Um, <laughs> I'm. I it was probably I Temptation. Forget. Uh, Temptation. I, I think I think you wrote the line notes for that. That was recorded live at Wilfs. Oh with, yeah, with a really yeah. great band. Uh, yeah. Todd Strait was on drums. Yeah. John was on guitar on some numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, wonderful album. It's available on iTunes. Mm-hmm. She has a album that she recorded herself using some equipment that I lent her. Is from with John Stoll and it's poetry from right. That's the one. I, I I know yeah. I wrote the liner notes for that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, and that's well, yeah. We uh, and then she'll go from that project to one and do a hip hop album. Right. So it's she covers a lot of territory. Yeah. Really covers it very well too. Yeah. Um, okay, so. This is that's what this is that 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 that's a, very briefly so, your musical background, mm-hmm. but I wonder how many p- people know that you're also an attorney. Um, <laughs> probably and you dress the part. You're dressed I, I, for the, you're dressed I, I, for the part I, I, today. That's right. It's, I am and most of the time, as a matter of fact. Most of the time, I am, uh, that, and that's why I am dressed in that part is because of the attorney. Uh, I was a musician for a number of years and was uh, had gone to the Midwest was playing some jazz there but also in order to pay bills was playing country playing anything at all that I could possibly do yeah. came back to Oregon and started working for the uh, well I was a tax collector okay I was a tax collector, and I collected child support. So I was very unpopular with lots of people. Yes. Uh, and I realized I was on the wrong end of the phone, Tom. I was, uh, I was telling these people, no, that's not right. Yes, they have to pay the taxes. Yes, I did take your Lamborghini. And yes, you're not getting it back. So uh, I went to law school, got involved with business and transactional law, which is uh, a term which means anything at all which is related to a business like this coffee shop I might have a part of. It would be employee relations. It would be whether or not they just bought some new furniture and all of the chairs were the wrong size. So any kind of issue that might come up with a contract or associated with the business. They want a license. They need a business license. They have a tax right. problem. Well, we're back. Someone because uh, after they, a brief uh, pause, uh, uh, because the computer crashed. Someone was not reporting as a W two. In- <laughs> no, it's not. It's a PC and it's kind of old. I think we may have to switch to another computer. But you were talking about um, when you became a lawyer and the kind of stuff that you do, which was. Business and transactional, which yeah. is, as I was saying, everything about a business. So it's uh, it's an interesting world because you find out when someone comes in and says, well, I'm building yachts. Okay, good. That's a nice business. And then they say, well, but I'm having tr- trouble getting them through the Panama Canal in order to get them to the... Uh, yeah, you want me to solve that problem. Okay, I'll do that. So it's, it can be fascinating. It can be you'll learn about things you never had any idea. <laughs> and it's uh, 
very wonderful to know a little bit about a lot of businesses. The, uh, I remember that uh, first time I started working with a company that sold flour, I, I said, well, where are your contracts? Like baking flour? The, the flour, like the mill okay. out in right. uh, eastern Oregon. And they said, oh, we don't have contracts. <laughs> I said, you don't have any contracts? Oh, no, we do it by handshake. What's the average size of a transaction? Oh, about 30, 40 million. You don't have any contracts. <laughs> okay. But that's what the industry was. Wow. It was, it was, you knew who it was. It was somebody you knew. And if something went wrong, it was all surprises. Steve, we're in bankruptcy court. Yeah, that's because you weren't paid, and the people who didn't pay you are in bankruptcy now. That's right, you're in bankruptcy court. Jeez. Well, don't we have some kind of lien? Well, if you had a contract, you'd have a lien. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, well, so sometimes we manage to survive those things. <laughs> so how long have you been doing this? I became an attorney at Brownstein Rask in 1991. It's kind of late in life to pick that up. Yeah, it? it was late <laughs> in life. I was uh, one of the older people in law school. Mm-hmm. But it, as I said, I had been... <laughs> working as a professional musician for a while. We've been working for the state and uh, starts to add up. So when I finally did decide to go to law school, I was um, ready for it. Glad I did. Uh, and it's been a pretty good ride since then. It's a, a lot of hard work, a lot of long hours. What, what law school? I went to Lewis and Clark. Along uh, with, what's his name, the Klesmer guy? Along with the Klesmer guy? What's his name? Um, I... Oh, jeez. He's a clarinet player. Oh, I'm, I'm blanking. The Mazel Tov Orchestra. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, no, oh, Sammy. Sammy. Sammy Epstein. Sammy okay, Epstein. Sure. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I, did, I did a lot of this stuff. Yeah, like now he's, he's actually um, more involved in patent law because uh-huh. he had a background as being an engineer and he also and because of that he also came to law a little bit later in life uh-huh. he's pretty much ensconced down in Austin now but he comes up here occasionally yeah. and plays with the Mazel Tov Orchestra yeah. And, yeah. and with a trio uh, I think it's called Mirage uh-huh. and they could I remember uh, I did a TV story on him because oh. it was unusual mm-hmm. you know? and uh, uh that was more when Klesmer was more happening, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in mainstream. Uh, and and I remember uh, shooting a, uh, a a wedding reception that they were playing, mm. and he had one of the best bands. In oh, town. sure, sure. He had great right. people yeah. in his band: Dave Captain, yeah. Reinhardt, Carolyn yeah. um, <laughs> Joyce, usually on vocals. Uh, yeah, always top-notch people. And he well, he pulled them out of the woodwork. So it's always it was kind of funny to see the uh, muzzle Tov. So where'd you go to undergrad school? I went to Portland State University. Did you? Yeah, I did from 1974 to 1978. Wow. Uh, did a little bit of music there. I was in Bob Dietschy's first jazz history class. Wow. Uh, and took some lessons from... Uh, a couple of the classical guitar players there. I I'm always been interested in playing solo guitar, and uh-huh. in fact, that's mostly what I do now. Yeah. A lot of what is, uh, and I'm trying to just trying to remember what some of the names of those people were. But I will tell you a story. This is a story about Portland State University. Um, they had uh, an interesting lack of it, but they always would try to bring in people if they were in town performing. So one time I showed up at a what was supposed to be a master class mm-hmm. for vibes players with Gary Burton, and I was the only person in the room, wow. guitarist. Wow. So I was, it's like down that about that particular <laughs> wow. event. Huh. Yes. <laughs> um, so what was the nature of the jazz scene like back then? Some people try to make it into a magical, perfect place, and it wasn't. It certainly had its issues just like today does. But it was magical in in a number of ways. This was a period of time when uh, there were three bands that were playing 
kind of fusion music. Mm-hmm. Okay, one of them was uh, Tom Grant's band, yeah. and that turned into a very popular band, but mm-hmm. didn't go over the top. The one that went Ballmer, over the top. Dan Ballmer in that band? Yeah, Dan was in the band for yeah. quite a number of years. He yeah. sat in just to become part of the band, but he, when they started touring, he was part of the band and continued to be part of the band. But the one who went over the top was Jeff Lorber. Yeah. And Jeff Lorber did have the infamous Kenny G here with him living in town, <laughs> then known as, I think, Gorlick. Is that that's what it is? Gorlick, yes. Yes. Um, that's, that's one of um, the guys who, who do the Dead Kenny Gs. They, one of their albums was called Gorlick. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, he's... Uh, it's uh, you know not not a style that I'm particularly interested in. I don't find it enjoyable, interesting, or inspiring. You know, but, when the Portland Beavers came to town and, and they redid the stadium, mm-hmm. they had a really funny um, PR or, or promotions guy. And w- before one of the games, they 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 played Kenny G, and they said, "We will stop." when we sell X number of beers. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's great. I, 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 that, to me, is uh, a classic thing. Go on. Good. Um, at, the, at that time, Jeff Lorber was taking uh, music lessons from my aunt, who was uh, out at Merrillhurst. And so I listened to a number of his original compositions in a composition class out there. And he was very um, uh, humble about it, and he was also, but he was very determined. And he certainly has carried through and is, you know, doing fabulously well. Uh, there is another player who is also doing fusion music called Dan Siegel. Mm-hmm. And the reason I mention those three people is that they really give you that whole scene yeah. of Dan. One, all three of them sounded very good live. And they were a lot of fun to listen to. Mm-hmm. They just did. They were good. I've talked with this about with Dave Capkin, and he says that he prefers Tom Grant as a composer, and I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. But all three of them were playing places like Cousins and uh, Delavans, and they were all pretty popular. And if you were just to go in on any particular night, mm-hmm. you would not have thought that there was that much difference huh. Between them, yeah. in terms of how popular they were, all good bands. Dan pretty much did not go anywhere. Tom had a yeah. pretty good career for a while and has, you know, gone back down. And Lorber's just still at the top of the heap, huh. and he's still yeah. making recordings that sell well and so on. Mm-hmm. So you can't really. Uh, sometimes people will say, "Well, it's if you're a really good player, you're going to rise to the top." I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that a lot of it has to do with catching the wave, and the wave yeah. that um, Lorber caught happened to be called Kenny G Wave. And yep. Boy, but boy, what a killer band Lorber had too. The drummers here, man, uh-huh. that they were terrific. It was it was awesome. Um, um, so was was Jerry Hahn here then? By, by that Jerry time? Hahn came in a little bit later. Later, that's what he, I thought. Yeah. But he's uh, but he was sort of in that vein, wasn't he? Uh, for well, a while, did just play fusion? Jerry was one of the original, quote-unquote, jazz rock pioneers. Yeah. He's, more, he's more like Larry Coryell, started oh, yeah. off in the earlier side. He, he wasn't playing in that style when he got here. No, no. Uh, I remember what, my, my first week here in Portland, when I moved mm-hmm. here 20 years ago, yeah. I went into Jazz the Opus, mm-hmm. and he was the first musician I saw in Portland. Jerry oh, Hall. wow. Yeah, it was good. I mean, I went... Wow. Yes. <laughs> this is really good. <laughs> well, there was, again, we had such wonderful venues. Uh, Jazz Diopus was an uh, outstanding venue that featured national acts. Uh, I lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years in 1980, 1982, and quite often I would see um, someone like Jim Hall mm-hmm. down at McCabe's at Santa Monica, mm-hmm. and then talk to people on the phone and they were going to see him the next night in Portland at Jazz the Opus. Yeah. So we would see the same group yeah. of musicians kind of be able to compare notes. And so uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Did Terry Clark get over his broken arm? Well, no, that's only last night. Of course he didn't get over his broken arm. Still broken. <laughs> yeah. So how would you compare it to today? That era to today? Um, Don't you I, find a lot more young young players out there now? There are... Uh, Keith Jarrett is famous for saying there are a lot more musicians, there are no more artists than there were. <laughs> And I would agree with that. There are a lot more musicians. There's fewer venues. The uh, competition is pretty intense. I'm. I think that there was a, a wide variety of performance spaces at that time. Every hotel had a lounge where there would be a, a good group. Every club had some kind of music, whether it was rock or jazz. There was uh, some nice coffee houses. There was yeah. the Ninth Street exit is where a lot of the jazz people would hang out. And Dan Balmer used to play. There was uh, Tom Wakeling. They had a jam session, mm-hmm. and it would. Uh, there was a what was it called? Arbuckle Flat, I think, something like that was over here in the, and there would be a jam session that. Ron Steen would have one of his earlier ones. Tom Grant was usually on that. They had a group that was called Eminon, no name backwards, yeah. after a tune by Dizzy Gillespie. But that was, you know, I remember seeing Chico Freeman and Rio Kawasaki come wow. in to sit in on that jam session. Nice. And that was just astonishing. Yeah. And yeah. people who came through town. We used to have the uh, Parchment Farm, which is where right. the Ted Curson. Ted Kirsing came through town. He picked up uh, Tom Grant and Ronnie Steen and I'm trying to remember who the bass player was. I don't think it was Captain, but mm-hmm. there would be lots and lots of activity going on. Now, where were you, or what were you doing, and did it, and, and when, when the whole grunge thing happened, did that have any, any impact on you at all? <laughs> um... I, I like all kinds of music. I'm still waiting for a grunge song that floats my boat. All right. They don't make them anymore. I don't, yeah, think. No, I don't think so. <laughs> but I'm still looking. I'm still waiting for a hip hop mm-hmm. uh, song that will float my boat. There are some promising overlaps. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that Brad Melbow does are, mm-hmm. are kind of interesting. Groups like the Bad. Plus, would cover some mm-hmm. tunes by Nirvana and so on. A uh, wonderful saxophonist named Gary Thomas did some very promising experiments with uh, rap, mm-hmm. but they just were yeah. near misses. All of them. I like Derek misses. Hodge. Yeah? I like Derek Hodge. I don't like Robert Glasser, but I like his bi- the, the albums his bass player makes. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's 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 pretty hip hop. Yeah, they are. And there's I've heard some I've heard some things that are. Yeah more and more interesting to me they tend to be what I call 15 minutes right Uh, you know I listen to it but that goes from you know that's kind of how I treat Bill Frizzell he's just not I lots of people out there love him I love him I (laughs) always always listen to his stuff yeah but it's not something that I put on for enjoyment yeah Yeah. Um, uh, early hip hop I got I got I jumped on early hip hop immediately Mm -hmm. I, I was I was working at a TV station making making evening magazine uh, yeah. stories in yeah. Baltimore when when that all that happened mm-hmm. and I would I would put hip hop stuff behind stories and oh. they thought I was out of my mind. Well, you know, well you're just ahead of the curve. <laughs> I was you? I was and then and then it got ugly. Ah, it just got ugly. It well, got to be, it got to be about you know. Are you talking about the lyrical content? I'm talking about the lyrical content. I would agree with you, and that's something that I I enjoyed a number of the groups that were trying to be um, uh, more positive. And right about that time, they opened up the Blue Note vaults, and there were some interesting yeah. Yeah. Uh, collaborations. Mm-hmm. But, but all of them were, yeah, it's okay. You know, uh, I, I, I remember a, a tune called "The Message." 
mm-hmm. I believe it was Grandmaster Flash, and yeah. it was that was not positive, but it was real. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't it wasn't all about how big their dick was. Well, there you know? is that, yeah. Yeah. and how much money they have, right? And how they want right. to how they want to kill people, right? You know, and rape people. I mean, I'm sorry, I, I just I can't well, get behind I, it. I never have, and I never will. Well, I'm, I'm going to make a little transition here, and yes. that is. That's one reason why I've always had trouble with Billie Holiday. Yeah. Because Billie Holiday has such negative mm-hmm. life, and she's vitally important to jazz. But boy, you know, hush now, don't explain. Come on, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and again, it's 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 part of me saying. I understand the history. I was a history. I was an English major, and I understand that if you have, um, if you go to a Shakespeare play and you don't know what the cultural context is there, you really are missing ninety percent of what was going on. Yeah. And I do understand that she had a cultural context. The it's amazingly powerful when it comes out in something like Strange Fruit. It's amazingly heartbreaking to have it come out in something like. Uh, Ain't nobody's business if yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah, it does matter to us whether or yeah. not you get thrown in the ocean. Right. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't hear that from Nina Simone. No, you would not. <laughs> no, you would not. Thank goodness. Yeah, that's a, certainly someone who had, uh, took a powerful message yeah. And, yeah. Uh, of strength. Uh, and that, of course, is, was carried over in the music of people such as Max Roach, mm-hmm. the Freedom Now Suite. Mm-hmm. have some Abby Lincoln's lyrics and yeah. wordless vocals on some well, of those Well, Beyonce things. has a lot to say. Yeah, I, absolutely. No doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I agree. Hmm. Well, listen, thank you for coming by. This has been, this has been really interesting. Uh, uh, this is one of those things I was talking when I did this thing, same thing uh, you know, a week or so ago with Dusty York. Who I know, mm-hmm. right? And I, and it occurred to me a few days before that although you and I have talked a million times, there are lots of things I don't know about you. Uh, yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, that's that. <laughs> and I blame myself for that. I just totally. I mean, I blame myself for that because that means that means I'm not a good friend or something, right? Uh, uh, I I think it's just a matter of when you get involved with people, especially when you're being. Uh, forced to try and get a recording turned into a podcast yes. and put up onto the air, you, you kind of tend to talk about that. You know, is it processed yet? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's that's what we got. But yeah. we have. Uh, I don't think there's any blame. You know. But anyway, no, I, I blame myself for everything. So it's it's, it's oh, okay. okay. <laughs> well, I'll, I'm going to unload a little bit of my blame then, Don. If you're going to blame yourself for everything. Alrighty, thanks a lot. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Thank you.